Greetings again. This is the next episode in our series Revelation Revisited and represents the second part of the letter to the church at Pergamon or Pergamos was the subject of the last episode where we managed to reach only verse 16 of chapter 2 of the book of Revelation. So today we're going to finish off the letter uh, to the church at Pergamon and draw the conclusions that we can from it uh, to help us in our situation in the present day. It's amazing how relevant the scriptures are to the present day. Uh, we're talking about things that happened 2,000 years ago, but they nevertheless point us in the right direction and warn us of the wrong direction in church life today. So let me first of all read the whole of the letter so that you've got the context available. And we're going to start in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12, where the Lord Jesus Christ is dictating a letter to the Apostle John, which will eventually form part of the book of Revelation, which is sent to all seven churches of Asia Minor. Revelation 2 verse 12 And to the angel, and that word means messenger in this context, and to the messenger of the church in Pergamos, write, These things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works, and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, 
which no one knows except him who receives it. Well, now in the first part of that letter, the previous episode in this series, we got as far as verse 16. So I'm not going to talk about the earlier verses. You'll have to go back to the previous episode, which is available, of course, earlier on the podcast. In verse 16, I pointed out that the glorified Lord Jesus Christ calls upon the church to repent and threatens as an alternative to that that he will come quickly and will fight against them, not you, but them, with the sword of my mouth. Now we saw that the sword of the mouth of Christ is his word, the scriptures, basically. And we also saw that the people he's going to fight against are not the church as a whole, he calls the church to repent, but he's going to fight against the groups who are described earlier in the letter, uh, the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans, who had imported into the Christian church, not only here but in other places, some of the pagan rituals and practices that were common in society around them. Well now, there is an interesting point to be taken up here, and that is how can Christ fight against these uh, deviant groups, I'll call that, uh, I'll use that title to describe the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans together, Uh, how can Christ fight against these deviant groups if the leaders of the church and the preachers of the church uh, had not done so themselves. You see, he's asking the church to repent of the fact that they tolerated these groups within their number, which means, of course, that the leaders, the preachers in that church had failed to do their job of expelling these heretics, as they were, from the church. That's why they have to repent. But here it says, if they don't repent, then as plan B, Christ will come and fight with the scriptures, the word of his mouth, the sword of his mouth, against these deviant groups. Well now, how can that happen? Because the leaders have not done it, and they are the people in place who are capable of doing it. Christ fights with the sword of his mouth through his servants, through those he has chosen to lead and teach churches. Well, the only answer I can see to that is that he will replace the present leaders and preachers by others who will 
to do the job that they ought to have done themselves. So there is a concealed threat here for the present leaders of the church to be displaced, removed and replaced by those who will be more faithful and deal with these deviant people uh, in an appropriate biblical and apostolic manner. And this raises a, a wider point here in the seven letters. We saw how the Lord threatened to remove the lampstand, that is to put to an end the existence of the church in Ephesus if they did not repent. But here he's proposing a different way of dealing with a problem in the church, not to remove the church. It was obviously an important church because it existed in a city which was dominated by pagan ritual or pagan religion and therefore the Lord wants that church to stay. But he is going to replace the leaders if it doesn't do its job and if they don't get rid of these deviant groups. And that is interesting, the Lord deals with different churches in different ways. One is going to simply snuff out if they don't repent. Another, he has a separate idea of removing the leadership and replacing it. Uh, but in any case, this does underline the intimate interest that the glorified Christ has in local churches. And that's something that we should take to heart today. The Lord is going to deal with local churches in one way or another. And if they are failing, then he will either revive them or he will remove them. And we need to be conscious in our church life that the Lord is present dealing with us. Well now, that leaves the last item to be dealt with. Let me read that again. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now we find such promises, of course, in each of the seven letters, all introduced by the expression, he who has an ear, let him hear, or heed, or take notice of what the Spirit says to the churches. And the promises are addressed to those who overcome or are victorious um, or conquer. Various words are used in different translations. Uh, it is addressed to people who are quite evidently 
real Christians. And I think we can go further than that and say that every genuine Christian is an overcomer. He is or she is someone who overcomes, who is faithful to the last. In other words, we can equate the word overcomer with the word Christian, true Christian, biblical Christian. And that means that the promises made to overcomers in all seven letters apply to every Christian today as then. It isn't that the promises made in this letter apply only to the inhabitants of Pergamon who were believers. Now it applies to you and me. It applies to people in each of those churches and in every church, in every age and in every culture. And, and that's important because the Lord says here, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Not that to the church, not to the churches writing to, but to the churches in general. So then, that's the first thing I need to remind you about. The second thing I need to say is this. We often speak of these things that are promised as rewards, and it's a perfectly reasonable word to use, except that we must not misunderstand it and think that in some way these people are being saved by their works. They are not. They're being saved by grace through faith, as we are told in Ephesians 2. And that not of yourselves, Paul continues, it is the gift of God. The salvation that comes to us is the gift of God. It is not earned, not earned by good works, not earned by perseverance, not earned by keeping the faith. It's simply a gift from God. Even repentance and faith, the things that we must exercise in order to become Christians, those are gifts from God. So we can't boast about them and say that we've done something to contribute to our salvation. But I do believe that the New Testament teaches that to those who are saved by grace through faith do receive rewards of some kind, either in this life or in glory. And the promises we read about in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the seven letters to the churches, uh, are sometimes rewards that apply to the living Christians, and they're sometimes rewards that apply to those who have left this life and gone to be with Christ. 
Now, the third general thing I, I need to point out, coming specifically to this text, is that in this letter, uniquely, the gifts that are talked about, the promises that are made, the rewards that will be given, are both mysterious. They're hidden. Here they are. I will give him some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except the one who receives it. There is a secrecy, something hidden here, which, which is unique to this letter. But as I've already pointed out, it applies to every one of us. So what does it mean? What does it signify? Well, we often talk theologically about the hiddenness of God. The fact that although God manifests his power and Godhead and glory in creation in the natural world in the cosmos generally people are blind to that and God does not uh, appear on television he doesn't uh, turn up in our church and say look I am God I've come so that you should recognize I exist and and so on God is hidden from the unbelieving world. In one sense, he's hidden from the Christian also, for no man has seen God at any time. And uh, the Lord Jesus is the one who has revealed God to us, because he is God himself. So he is, if you like, the visible part of God. But God the Father, we're told in 1 Timothy, no man has seen or can see. But whilst we are told about the hiddenness of God, there is also a possibly unrecognized thread in the New Testament of the hiddenness of the believer. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we're told that the believer discerns all things. He that is spiritual discerns all things, yet he himself is not discerned by any man. And what does this mean? It means simply that the unbelieving world looking at a believing Christian can see his Christian behavior, but cannot see the reality of God dwelling in that person. God has sent his, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So God indwells the true believer by his Holy Spirit. But the world can't see that. The world sees us as just ordinary people going about ordinary lives, doing ordinary things, but doing them in a way that ought, at least, to draw attention to the fact that we are witnesses for Christ. So the Christian is hidden, hidden from the world, 
not hidden from God and not hidden from one another, but hidden. And so the fact that these promises are for rewards that are in some way hidden, the hidden manner and the unknown name, is, I think, just a reflection of that particular doctrine. And in Romans 8, we're told that there will come a time when uh, the children of God will be revealed. When Christ returns, uh, there will be a manifestation of the children of God and the people of God and of what they truly are, sons and daughters of the Most High God. But that's not obvious to the world around us at this time and whilst we live upon this earth. Well, now, what are the particular rewards? First of all, the hidden manner. I will give him some of the hidden manner to eat. Well, now, what um, what does that signify then? Well, it signifies Christ, of course. In John chapter 6, we read there in Verse 26, most assuredly, Jesus says, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and fishes. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. And then he goes on. I think I'll read it. John 6 and verse 28. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you, present tense, the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Well, I think it was worth reading that extended uh, section from John's Gospel because it shows quite clearly that in New Testament thinking, the manna that fed the Israelites in the wilderness during their pilgrimage, as it were, their travels, their wanderings, until they entered the promised land, that that manna, that bread from heaven, which really did, did come and it did feed them, a real event. But nevertheless, it is, for the New Testament, a picture of Christ. I am the true bread, he says, who comes down from heaven, who has come down from heaven to give life to the world. 
So then, there is the first of the rewards, Christ. We are, as believers, enabled to and encouraged to feed upon Christ. Indeed, that should be our, our daily occupation. Uh, and to feed upon him, of course, is to believe in him, to trust him, to obey him, to commune with him, to hear his word, to take it to heart, and to walk in the light as he is in the light, to walk in fellowship, therefore, with the Lord Jesus Christ on a, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. That is our privilege and indeed our responsibility. And so all believers are encouraged to feed upon Christ. Now, we don't often do this. We are all too ready to feed upon the wrong things, uh, to feed upon the uh, pleasures and gifts of this life that God gives us freely to enjoy, but we're not to feed upon them. Uh, we're not to get our nourishment from them, in other words. We are to get our nourishment spiritually from Christ as we feed upon him by faith, by meditation on his word, by following him in the path that he has set before us, by obeying him, by testifying to him and rejoicing in him. So that's the first of the two rewards. Now, what about the second? That's uh, perhaps rather more obscure. I will give to him the white stone or a white stone. And on that stone, a new name written. Now, I understand that white stones were often given in those days to those who won competitions. Uh, athletic competitions, those who, who overcame, as it were, in a physical situation. Now, the victor in a, in a race was usually given a laurel wreath. It's called a crown, but it's just a laurel wreath. But the laurel wreath really conveys no particular privileges. It just shows that the person is the winner, was the winner, and eventually, of course, it fades away. The white stone had a different purpose. I'm not sure whether it was given together with a, a laurel wreath or whether it was uh, instead of a laurel wreath. Uh, but, but it doesn't matter, really, does it? It was given with the name of the winner, the overcomer, the victor in the competition, written, engraved upon it. And it could be used as a kind of passport uh, to obtain various privileges in society, perhaps free admission to other athletic competitions, perhaps access to areas or people that would not otherwise have uh, received uh, any representations. 
it, it was it was a privilege. It was an identity card, if you like. But the difference here, of course, <clears throat> is that the name written on the stone is not the name of the overcomer, because the whole point of the white stone as a passport was that people would know who it was presenting the stone to them. But here, that name is unknown. And as we've already seen, that almost certainly is a reference to the hiddenness of the true nature of the believer. So what name is written on the stone? I believe again it is the name of Christ. Jesus Christ. And when it says no man knows it, it's talking about the world in general, not talking about fellow believers who do know it, who have their own white stones, but it's talking about the world at large. They do not know what is written on the white stone. They do not even see the white stone. But that white stone gives us access to the very throne of God. Let us come boldly, therefore, says Hebrews, to the throne of God, having, having received the uh, wonderful gift of access through the work of Jesus Christ. Let us come boldly before the throne of God that we might receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. We have this wonderful access, not to some privileged position or meeting or gathering, but we have this privileged access to the very throne of God, to God himself. We are able to present that white stone, if you like, with the name of Christ inscribed upon it. And we can say, as we do in our prayers, we come in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord. That is a privilege that goes beyond any privilege that this world knows. The privilege of intimacy with a holy God in and through Jesus Christ. What a gift that is. Are you making full use of it? Are you really coming boldly before the throne of God? Are you, are you seeking his mercy daily? Are you seeking grace to help? in time of need, for I'm sure all of us consider we have needs all of the time. Are you bringing them before God? Are you casting your care upon him, knowing that he cares for you? I hope so. Well, in the next episode of Revelation Revisited, we shall move on to the next letter, the church at I attire.